0: So we've been looking (coughs) over uh, the messages that Jesus has in the book of Revelation to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Uh, We looked at Ephesus a couple weeks ago. We looked last week with Minda at the church of Smyrna. Today we're going to look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 through 17. Your Bible may say the compromising church is the church of Pergamos. And by way of reminder... Uh, In every single one of these, uh, again, not every single one, but almost every single one of the seven churches, Jesus follows this template. He always begins his message with a revelation of himself. That is the key topic, the key idea of the book of Revelation is that Jesus Christ be revealed, firstly. Secondly, he commends each church for the good things that they're doing. Before he gets to any kind of correction, he wants to first acknowledge what things that he wants to strengthen and affirm. But then he gets into areas that need to be corrected. How many of you know we have areas in our lives that need to be corrected? And this same Jesus, doubtless, is still looking over his churches and still wanting to let some things be affirmed and other things be corrected. And if we are afraid of being corrected, it's simply because we have a wrong idea of what correction is all about. It's for our good. <laughs> you know, what's the use of affirming somebody who's going down the wrong road, but saying, patting him on the back and saying, well done, keep going. Is that helping them? And so Jesus loves his church and he has a purpose for his church. And he has to correct things in us in order for us to achieve or, or to arrive at the destination he has for us. And then he corrects, then he, then he gives a warning of what's going to happen if we don't respond, but also a promise of what's going to happen if we do. So this morning, Church of Pergamos, Jesus reveals himself as the one with God's communication. The one out of whom comes God's communication. He commends some of the things that we are doing, our works, and also commends not denying Jesus When surrounded by evil, he corrects um, the blending of our faith with worldliness or with the evils of this world. Mixing of faith with evils of this world, or worldliness. He warns that if we remain uncorrected, there would be divine judgment, that he would have to take action to make us encounter the correction that needs to take place. But if we will respond, that we will walk in the, we will receive hidden communication from God, communication from God that would give us dis, the, our identity. And you'll understand more of what we mean in just a minute. So I'm just going to read through this uh, right now. And to the angel, verse 12, of the church in Pergamos, write, these things says he who has the sharp, sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of, uh, in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols to commit sexual immorality." Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So let's start back in that 12th verse And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write these things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Again, in every single one of these messages, Jesus begins by revealing himself to the church. And the way that he reveals himself to that particular church is relevant to that particular church and to the message that he is about to bring to the church. This is important. Because Jesus reveals himself to you and to me. And sometimes we just encounter something, we study the scriptures, we have prayer moments where we feel like we have a glimpse of Jesus, and we just think that it's we've just seen something, when in fact Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, has intentionally revealed a particular part of himself to us for a purpose. He does not arbitrarily and inha- ha- uh, haphazardly reveal certain parts. It is strategic. And so how he reveals himself to this church is the one out of whom comes, uh, excuse me, these things says, he who has the sharp two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth, the one with the sharp two-edged sword. Now you might say, what in the world does that mean? Well, the sharp two-edged sword, doubtless throughout the greater council of Scripture is referring to the word of God. Uh in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is writing about the spiritual armor, tells us to take up the shield of faith, tells us to put on the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, have our feet shod with the, go- the preparation of the gospel of peace. There's one offensive weapon that he mentions, he says, and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. What is the word of God? It's a, it's a sword. And Jesus is being identified here as the one with the two-edged, the sharp two-edged sword. We're talking about the word of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, capable of dividing asunder soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart of man. The the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged. So when we're talking about the sword, what were you talking about? The Word of God. It's the Word of God. And I want to specifically point out this last scripture that I just referenced, Hebrews 4.12, about it being capable of dividing asunder, splitting something to where two parts are made. It says, capable of dividing asunder joint and marrow or soul and spirit. A sword does cut, right? It's a two-edged sword, by the way. The first edge of the sword of the Lord, I believe, is to bring a word that would speak to our hearts and direct our path, that if we would receive it, we would walk in the right way. But there's a backside to that sword, if necessary, that if we won't receive the front end, the Lord then needs to bring judgment to cause us to actually really hear it. (laughs) It's not his first choice. And we're going to hear next week to the church of Thyatira how he gives a space to repent, but then he has to take action if repentance won't take place. Are you following what I'm saying? It is not Jesus' desire to bring judgment. You understand that. But it is his desire for his church to be glorious. And, And whether it's the edification of the word of God or whether it's the the, the things that we that he brings to force us to see some things, either way, God is good. But what I want to point out here is that this, according to Hebrews four twelve, the the word of God divides asunder soul and spirit. Now many of us here would think, well, the word of God should divide asunder flesh and spirit, right? Because it's the flesh that's our enemy. The flesh is what when what what sin dwells in. What's this dividing soul and spirit? Well, how many of you know we all have a body? We uh, are spirits. Oh, uh, now I'm getting confused. We are spirits. We have a soul and we live in a body, right? And, f- and sin dwells in that flesh. You would think that this word of God's going to divide the flesh from the spirit. What is the soul? It's our mind. It's our will. It's our emotions. It's what we think, what we feel, and what we believe. It's not always in, in, uh, in connection or in accordance with God. This, the area that the, the church probably gets tripped up more, I'm not saying the flesh isn't a problem, but probably gets tripped up more is the soul. Because we think, we think that the thoughts that we have, the feelings that we have, those must be of God. And what we're going to see this morning is this church in Pergamos has a soulish, they're still worshiping Jesus, but they get over here into the soul. And this is rife throughout the church. is we're, we're mixing some stuff that's biblical with other things that are patently not biblical because of what we think, what we feel, what we believe. And the word of God, the one with the two-edged sword, divides asunder soul and spirit so that the church can have divided that which is of God from that which is not of God. Are we making sense this morning? We need the word of God to divide asunder that which is of him from that which is not of him. Why? Because the church, uh, I'll say it this way, Jesus' divine communication, if received, separates that which is of God's kingdom From that which is not, so that the church can shine the kingdom brightly. We, as the church, are called to be the ambassadors of a kingdom. And if we are receiving things that are not of that kingdom, our water gets muddied. Our message gets diluted. And we need the word of God to separate so that what we are walking in and what we are believing and what we are acting in is pure. So then Jesus moves on in verse 13 into the commendation. This is what we should do. He says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. How many of you ever felt that you dwell where Satan's throne is? <laughs> well, maybe, maybe, maybe some of you don't. I don't know. But I have felt that way. Where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, that means he was killed, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. And so, the commendation, and I would even say to some of us in this room, in fact, probably all of us, is that all of us are surrounded by evil, all of us, every day. We are surrounded by belief systems that counter the truth of the gospel. We're surrounded by belief systems that counter what we know to be truth. And yet, I don't know anyone in this room who is denied, I don't know, I don't think, has denied worshiping Jesus, denied being a follower of Jesus, has denied his name. I think Jesus would commend all of us. And uh, I don't want to dis on, I, I, I struggle to even say this because I don't want to dis on my own city. I love Detroit. But let's be honest, Detroit's got some issues. Detroit has a reputation around the country. When I when I moved here, feeling like God was calling my my family to Detroit, I remember talking to a friend of my brother uh, at his house, and we're like, "Yeah, we're we we feel like we're gonna move to Detroit, and we're gonna plant a church." And and she looked at me and said, "Why would you want to move to Detroit?" That's kind of like the the thing in coming here. You know, there's like the there's. Broken families, drug abuse, prostitution. There's, you know, crime. There's backward stuff in the government. Not that there's not elsewhere, but it's definitely been here in its history. A lot of there's a lot of evil. And uh, and it, there's a commendation for not denying Jesus. But check this out: the name Pergamus, the city in which this this message, particular message, is going to Pergamus not the name, but the, the city itself, was famous for its temple to Aesculapius, who was, I believe, the, the mythological son of Apollos. And uh, part of the uh, kind of idol of Aesculapius was he had a staff that had a, a snake wrapped around it. And so the idea of you live in the city of Satan's throne, there, they had the famous temple to Aesculapius, with this kind of snake around around the staff of the god. And literally in the temple, the floor was covered with non-venomous snakes that were thought to have healing power. And so there's this idea of of course in the Garden of Eden, Satan appeared the serpent as a serpent, the Lucifer as a serpent. And so this idea of you live in the place of Satan's throne. But let me let me say beyond just this one temple, what was common practice during this time in mythologic myth. God temples, (laughs) if you know what I'm saying, the worship of mythological gods, was temple prostitution. And this was not like, you know, you and I would be like, oh, temple prostitution. This was normal life. Acceptable. And ritual practice of eating foods that have been sacrificed to those gods. This is a normal, normal intercourse of social norms. You follow what I'm saying? So this is... This is, Jesus is saying, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And uh, I, I would say likely this city had great debauchery, what we would consider debauchery, sexual freedom, uh, promiscuity, and uh, you know all sorts of kind of deviant behavior. The commendation that Jesus is giving is, he's basically saying, your city has much evil, and yet you have not denied me while living there, even in the face of one of your own being killed for not denying the faith. So there's there's reason for commendation here, but I want to ask us some questions here. Let's bring this home. What are some of the evils of our area that we might encounter? What... We just heard of some of what was happening in Pergamus. What are some of the evils in our area? I would say for a lot of us, let's—I'll name a couple: fornication and sexual impurity. Fornication is so. What is fornication? Fornication is having sexual intercourse with somebody with whom you do not have a marital covenant. Whatever that that may be. So, how many kind? Look, I'm not having a go. How many dudes have I met in the city of Detroit, as I've done the pastoring that I've done, as I've done real estate that I've done, met people where, where a guy refers to me about his baby mama? I mean, constantly. I hear it probably daily. The idea is, I've got this woman, I'm not married to her, but she's had my baby. We're a thing. We live together, but we're not married, but we're a thing. Are you following what I'm saying? Common all over the place. I'm not having a go. I'm not trying to, I am wanting to say the word of the Lord divides asunder so that the church can call not to be the moral purists, but so that we can see the way of God and demonstrate to a dark world the way of God. What's another one? Money and greed. I had a conversation, some people are in this room with some young men in our You know, had the pleasure of met, and I asked them, "What are some of the ways that you've seen men fail to be leaders?" And we're kind of going through some stuff of what leadership is all about. And they were like, "Money, like greed, definitely. It is. It's. And in this city, it's going to point some stuff out. I'm not speaking as judging the city. I live in the city. I've encountered the the trials of the city to some degree while living here. There is a survival." Thing in the city, and and survival mentality causes you to compromise, money and greed, racing away from poverty, and willing to do compromise moral ethics in j- so that I'm not poor anymore. I've got to survive. So money and greed. I would say another one. Let me toss this one at us: religiosity. And I'm not just talking about the city of Detroit. I'm talking about <laughs> the world. Exactly. What do we mean by religiosity? Anything where we are putting Jesus' name, saying I'm a Christian, I'm serving God, but, but Jesus isn't actually involved in it, you're really just doing your own thing. That's rife. Going to church, doing the ch- you know how to talk the talk, know how to do the thing, know how to look like a Christian, and then you're not actually following Jesus in your life. You're just kind of playing the game. Religiosity. Can I, can I ask us to ask a, que- a question this morning of ourselves? What evils surround me in my environment that counter the truth of God's kingdom and tempt me to just kind of be like everyone else? Just ask yourself that question. What are the evils that surround me in my environment that counter actually counter God's truth? Everyone else kind of is on this wavelength that's not congruent with God's kingdom but I'm tempted to kind of act like I'm also on that wavelength. So here comes the correction. What we shouldn't do. Revelations 2, Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So some of you are in here saying, okay, I actually have no idea what in the world you just said. Who is Balaam? Who is Balak? And I'm certainly not, the last thing I knew, eating food sacrificed to idols. So let me just kind of give you some of the background of the story here with Balaam and Balak. So children of Israel, whole camp, million plus of Israelites, God's people, were coming through kind of in, in route to their... Their promised land, and they were passing by a group, another group of people called the Midianites, and the Midianites heard about them, and they were petrified of the of the children of Israel because of their numbers, and so Balak, who was a leader amongst the Midianites, hired this guy Balaam, who was a prophet amongst the Midianites, to curse the Israelites, and uh, it's a good strategy, and so he gets Balaam, and says, "Okay, we're going to pay you some money. You curse." The Israelites. Balaam goes away. He comes back, and he speaks blessing over the Israelites. And Balak is like, "I want my money back. I paid you to curse them, and you just bless them." And he's like, "I can only speak what the Lord says." It's amazing. He's not even a, a he's not even a follower of of the Lord. He's not even part of the Israelites, and yet he had this thing where he heard from God. The blessing and so Balak's uh, okay whatever you just I'll pay you again you go do it again okay you go curse those Israelites he goes away comes back and he blesses that you're the camp of Israel Balak's like what in the world is wrong with you I told you to curse them you're blessing them again this happens again a third time comes back and he speaks like amazing blessing over the I mean it's just like you are the chosen of God and you will dominate everybody and and Balak is about to throw in the towel, like, what is wrong with you? And uh, and all he could do is bless, and he, is, he uses his reason. I can only speak that which the Lord is saying. You would think Balaam should be commended, right? I mean, he's this prophet. He's not even a follower of God, and yet he's prophesying the actual words of God and being true to the real word of God. But actually, as you read, because you have there those that hold the doctrine or the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. See, the end of that story is not just that he ended up blessing the Israelites, it is that when he couldn't curse the Israelites, because God was not cursing the Israelites, his next tack of approach was to find how can we get in between these people and their God so that they're no longer under the blessing of God. Now, how, did you follow that? Now, how many of you believe that if the devil, he wants to curse us and he tries his best, but we are under the blessing of, the, of, of God himself? We are under the blessings of that God spoke over Abraham. We are children of God because of what Jesus has done. Curses cannot be placed upon God's people. And yet... Another tack of approach, if Satan can't place curses on us, is how about we get in between them and their God? How about if we get compromise into the camp so that God can't fully bless because they're no longer serving only him, but they're now also serving something else as well. Do you remember the beginning of this this message to the, the people of Pergamos? was commending them that they hadn't denied their faith. And it's one thing to not deny the name of Jesus, but it's another thing to add into that worship of something else as well. So what did Balaam do with Balak? We find out, I believe it's in Numbers chapter 30, that he told them, and in fact, the Bible doesn't explicitly say all these details. Jewish tradition kind of fills in some of the blank. He told Balak, send in young women multitudes of young women who we believe would have been temple prostitutes into the camp of Israel to seduce and lure the men into the temple using sex as a means to draw the men with the end that they wouldn't just end with sex in the temple, they would end with eating the food sacrificed to idols and ultimately worshipping idols, which is what happened. And the next thing that we see in, in the book of Numbers is God having to judge his people, bring judgment so that this thing becomes corrected, which it did, and they continued on with their God. Are you tracking? Satan wants to find ways to bring us down. And, he, and it's an impenetrable, it, God is with us. So he can't get God to curse us, but can he get us to no longer be with God? Are you following I hope that this kind of registers a little bit something of of a holy and righteous fear. That while we don't live afraid of the devil, please don't live afraid of the devil. We don't live afraid of the devil. We have authority, but we live with respect of the fact that we are fallible, and he finds our weak points. Do you know in military that's a, a thing? It's it's not not just having your strategy and all this. It's studying your enemy to find where the weak points are. I assure you the devil does that with us. You see it in the Garden of Eden. They were with God, but, but that apple, that's the weak point, or apple, whatever fruit it was, we don't know. It was good for wisdom. It would make them to be like God. Do you follow me? That was the weak point, the area of temptation. All of us have such a weak point. All of us. And the devil knows it and will try to attack that in order for that to become not just the area where we compromise, but ultimately to where we begin worshiping an idol. I'm not talking about worshiping Aesculapius or some other mythological god. I'm talking about placing our faith and our trust in something other than God. That's the issue of idolatry. And so this issue here in Pergamos was not that they just simply didn't deny Jesus. These Christians never denied Jesus. They were still clinging to Jesus, but there were some who were, in addition to claiming Jesus, were beginning to fall into something else as well. And So, just a couple questions I want to ask us. Because this issue is about two things, I think. One would be specifically sexual immorality, which is such a common issue for humankind in terms of weakness. But it's not just sexual immorality. I believe it more largely speaks of compromise in general. So if you think, well, sexual immorality is not really a thing for me, so I guess this message isn't for me. No, there's any weakness that we may have that would be a a, a source of compromise. So a couple questions that I think would be good to ask ourselves. Have I compromised sexually? You may say, well, I've never, had, I've, I've never had sex with somebody I'm not married to this week. I'm not doing any of that. Have I compromised sexually? And I'll specify three different areas that this would tend to happen. What I, ch- what I allow myself to behold with my eyes. What I look at. Another would be, have I compromised sexually with what I have said? Maybe we haven't had intercourse with somebody who's not our spouse, but have we allowed ourselves to say things to somebody of a flirtatious nature just to kind of touch that place, just to kind of go there, just to get the little pleasure of being attracted to somebody else and having them attracted to me? Have we done that? What I, what I, what I behold, what I say, and then, of course, what I do. Any action that I've taken. This is, this area has done untold damage in the work of God. Sexuality. And it's just a thing that we need to be wise to, and we need to, kind of like Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut the thing off. So we're going to slaughter hands later after Jesus. The idea is, is do whatever it takes ruthlessly to give your enemy no place to know your weaknesses with men it t- and the, i'm not i'm not i'm not saying men are all this way women are all this way okay but the tendency for men would be the sex drive the libido that becomes manipulated through temptation to get you to do something that you you otherwise you know you shouldn't do for men it's usually pursuing that thing out of the temptation because of your sex drive. Now I'm not saying that doesn't apply to women. <laughs> it most certainly does. But sometimes for women it can be more knowing the power of your own sexuality and using that to manipulate a man. You follow what I'm saying? We we'll maybe see that next week as well to the church of Thyatira with this you 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 uh, with, with the whole Jezebel issue. We'll get that we'll get that later. So when we talk about sexuality, women it's not just taking action that's wrong it's also manipulating using your sexuality using your beauty that's this question if it's not sexuality what might be my weak point where the enemy wants to gain entrance Again, this is not introspection. This isn't just looking at ourselves to try to evaluate how bad we are. Nothing like that. This is knowing the enemy's tactics. He is trying to get God's people out from under God's blessing. He can't put a curse on them, so he tries to other ways of temptation to get us to depart from following God, into the in the area where we're tempted so that we're no longer walking under the fullness of God's blessing. That's the issue. That's why this is so important. A third and last question before we move on. Do I engage in belief or practice that is actually worshiping other gods? See, so the temptation of the children of Israel was to compromise sexually by pursuing these temple prostitutes, but that the end goal was not just compromising sexually, it was that they would begin, because it was in the temple, in an idol temple, to begin worshiping another god. Mind you, they never stopped claiming Jehovah. Are you following? It's not like they said, well, forget Jehovah, I'm going with Baal. They were still claiming Jehovah and Baal. How many Christians today claim Jesus, but I'm also worshiping my career? Claim Jesus, but I really need all this stuff that I want to have, possessions. They claim Jesus, but I also want to dabble in this kind of sexual promiscuity thing because I really like that, but I also want to you know, do the Jesus thing on Sunday. You follow what I'm saying? That's what Jesus is getting at. You haven't denied your faith. You've added some other stuff that has nothing to do with my kingdom into it. And that's why we need a sharp two-edged sword to divide what is of your soul from what is of my kingdom so that you can shine brightly with what is of my kingdom. And the same is true of us today. So verse 15, and this is a continuation of the same last verse. Thus, the New King James says, which means in this same way, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So what, the, what Jesus is saying here is not that you there literally are some in this church who hold to the doctrine of Balaam. He's comparing the story that I just told you about Balaam and Balak and in saying in the same way in your church in Pergamos, not all but some, Hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. And so who are the Nicolaitans? Well, the Bible doesn't define who the Nicolaitans are. And a lot of history is a little difficult to really establish, but here's what most would agree, and I think it's probably true. The Nicolaitans were a Christian sect or a group uh, who who began to adhere to another uh, theology, another doctrine, another belief system, that allowed for the compromise of sexuality, sexual purity, and also the practice, the ritual practice that that had to do with idol worship, allowed for those things in Christianity. Most would believe that it was because of a misunderstanding of the freedom that we have in Christ. That to the pure, all things are pure; nothing is unlawful anymore, which is biblically true for the believer, uh, but but to use all of these things to serve and to love God and love people, not serve the flesh. That's where it goes wrong. I I hope you're tracking with what I just said. So this doctrine of Nicolaitans was perverting this idea of Christian freedom and liberty with the works of the flesh. Jesus says, I hate that. I hate that doctrine. And so what's the point? What's really the point here? The whole buildup of this correction comes to this issue of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. What's the whole point? How do we keep ourselves from adhering to some doctrine that would lead us astray from Christ's truth? It's the sharp two-edged sword. Well, how do we have that sharp two-edged sword that proceeds out of Jesus' mouth? It's your heart. It's for those who are dependent upon that sword to live by it. Anybody remember what the sword is? We're not talking about Jesus stabbing you, right? It's the word of God that is like a, a sharp two-edged sword in that it divides asunder. Those who know that they need and depend your life upon the word, you will know the doctrine, Jesus says. You, you will, for those who desire to do the will of God, Jesus says, they will know the doctrine, whether it's true. Truth is not that I go to this particular denominational church and they've got all the truth and so I belong to them and we all, we're the camp that has the truth. If your heart isn't following Jesus, the one with the sword, you can have all your doctrine right and be completely off. It's a heart issue. That's the whole point of what he's getting at is to call his church to not be compromised because we're clinging to the truth that comes from Jesus. Jesus. And if you're clinging to that truth, you more easily can discern when it's temptation. You can see temptation for what it is. It doesn't make it any more luring and powerful, but you can see it. You spy it out, and you're able to, in that way, avoid it. And so the, some of these Christians have begun to hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And so uh, we're going to go on, but I just want to say one thing before we move on. If the word of God and clinging to it is so important, and what I'm about to say is not self-serving, I'm not asking you to do this for me, I'm going to do this, what I'm about to say. What are we doing with this very message that is being preached right now? What are we going to do this week with it? How many of us would hear a message and then go into the week as opposed to, what if we take notes, we, we remember the scripture references, and sometime during the course of this week, we go back and look over this passage. We go back and look over our notes. We begin to ask God, God, what are the things where you're speaking to me? And then we begin to talk to him about the things that we're talking to, and we, uh, we allow the word of God to be a sword into our heart and allow it to begin to expose things where we're off so that we can be corrected. Can I suggest that we should all be doing that as a weekly practice, myself included, so that we're honoring the Word of God, doing something with it. But let's go on to this uh, next thing, the warning. Revelation chapter 2, verse 16, the warning, which is what will happen if we remain uncorrected. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus says to a church, Repent, or else I will come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. What's, what's he saying? He's going to come to this church, but he's not going to fight against everyone in the church. Why? Because not everyone was holding to this doctrine. But to the ones who were, that's who he's going to fight against. And what's he going to use as a, as a method, as a tool, as a weapon to fight against them? The word. With the sword of my mouth. The divine communication. Remember that sword is two edged. It means it has two sides to it, two edges. One for one way. And if that doesn't work, we go the other way. So I've given you my word. And if you're not going to repent, I'm going to come and I'm going to have to deal with those in the church you are not repenting of this thing and have to bring some some stuff to force you to deal with some stuff i believe and i've said this before covid you know god didn't god does not author evil right he does not create evil evil comes from the absence of god but god uses evil because he's sovereign and i believe covid was used by god strategically to purify the church Every person that I partner with closely in ministry around the world was profoundly impacted by Jesus because of what COVID put on the church. I mean, I know businesses were affected by COVID, but what is the church? It's the gathering of people. And gathering was the one thing that we were forbidden to do during this whole season. It had a profound impact on our normal rhythms of of church life, and it forced us to get back to the simplicity of the Word of God and prayer. Not performance, not wowing people, not getting a bunch of people into your church so that you can call yourself successful, getting back to Jesus. Now, I know some some churches may not have gotten that message, and they're continuing on, but the uh, people that I walk closest with are, myself included, way better in ministry, backside of COVID, than we were before. Way Feeling way more dialed in and connected in a real way with what Jesus is really about, about than we were before. I'm, why, why am I saying all that? God uses that stuff. Did God hate me before COVID? Was it all because he was so angry at me? He just wanted to, and all those pastors, he just wants to hit us with the sword of his mouth. I mean, he didn't hate me. I mean, sure, I'm sure he was angry to some degree, but he loves us. You, you follow what I'm saying? I loved him before that, and I still needed correction. From, from my from my Lord. So I'm just putting this into context. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and fight against him with the sword of my mouth. And now let's end it with the promise. What will happen if we course, course correct? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat and I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name which is no one knows except him who receives it? On the outset, on the surface, that can look very complicated and difficult to understand. But I, I hope I can just make this a little bit clear. I will give if you overcome. What do we mean by overcome? It means if you will hear what I am saying to you and actually walk in it. If you overcome in this message to what Jesus just said, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. What are we talking about hidden manna? In the wilderness, when the Israelites were leaving Egypt, crossed over the Red Sea, wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, how many of you know what God fed them with? Manna. And manna is a type of the Word of God. It's a type of Jesus himself who is the Word of God? So in John chapter 6, Jesus says, "Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, but I am the true bread that comes down from heaven. So when the when Jesus is talking about I will give you some of the hidden manna to eat, what's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus himself the bread of life. What elsewhere we, we hear man shall not live by, Bread, manna was a type of bread. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Manna is typified, it's it's connected to this idea that the word of God is like bread. Jesus says, I am the true living bread that comes down from heaven. John chapter 1 also says that Jesus was in the beginning, and he was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Are are you following this? So Jesus, the manna, is connecting to Jesus, who is connected to being the divine communication of God. Hebrews chapter 1 says, God in, in times past has spoken to us by many different, by prophets, many different voices, but in these last days has spoken the word of God has spoken to us in his son, who is the exact representation of his glory and the express image of his person. So, given to the hidden man to eat is speaking of the divine communication that comes from, from God. We will receive hidden revelation from the mouth of Jesus if we will overcome. But then it says, and I will give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Your name speaks of your identity. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you a white stone. Okay, now what are we talking about here? I believe, I I can't prove, prove this, but here's my interpretation of this. White stone is speaking, is referring to, Also to Revelation. Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 says, who do people say that I am? The disciples said, some say John or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he says, who do you say I am? Peter stands up, says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And uh, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my father in heaven what is what's what's Jesus talking about he's talking about communication that comes out of the mouth of God divine revelation flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you no man did this came by communication from God's mouth the discovery of who I am is that making sense and he's blessing Simon and says and I say to you that you are Peter you're no longer Simon, you're Peter, the Greek word being petras, which means a stone. Now, what did Jesus promise to give if we overcome hidden manna and a white stone? I say to you, you are stone, you're Peter, you're stone. And upon this boulder, this rock, this petra, you are petrus, stone, and upon this boulder, this petra, this boulder, I will build my church. What is the boulder that he's going to build his church upon? Revelation of who he is. In Peter, seeing by the communication of God who Jesus was in that passage, in the seeing of who Jesus was, the very next thing that Jesus does is identify to the one who sees him who they are. As you and I see Jesus, it is in the seeing of Jesus that we see who we are. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Do you see the, cor- the connection here? He who overcomes, who honors my word, who allows the sharp two-edged sword into your heart, who re- receives the revelation of who I am and receives my word, You will overcome, I'm going to give you hidden manna. I'm going to give you revelation of the things of the kingdom that other people are not seeing. And I will give you a white stone. What is that? It is your identity. And on that stone is going to be written, and it's a white stone. It's not just any stone. It's white, which speaks of absolute purity. I will give you on the white stone a name, which is a new name. It's your identity. It's who God has called you to be from before the foundations of the earth. And the only way for you to know who you are, according to God, is by seeing who my son is. It's as you see revelation that in that you get revelation of who you are and you walk in this earth in purpose. And so Jesus is saying, this is what I've got for you. This is what I want for you. It's not just that I want you to do right and get this doctrine of the Nicolaitans out because it does not I don't like it. It's that I want to give you hidden manna. My people, I want to give you a white stone with a name upon it that only you and I know, and you are secured in your identity and who you are, and you can walk with that confidence in this earth. That's what I want. That is why I need you to receive my sharp two-edged sword. Amen? So I'm just going to hand it back to uh, Rodney and Nita, but I just want to read this as they're getting up. If we will purify our beliefs... To only what comes from Jesus' mouth, we will receive hidden revelation that causes us to become who we were created to be.